College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your hosts, John Johnson and Larissa Bianco. I want to welcome everybody here to this webinar tonight. I was uh, re rereading or maybe reading for the first time, I'm not even sure, this text by St. Athanasius on the Incarnation. That is what we're reading tonight, right, Larissa? You got it right? Um, yes, good. And um, blown away. I hope you all had a chance to read it and have it handy. What a powerful, marvelous text and what a great opportunity that we have uh, to, to study it together in seminar format with great minds and Dale Alquist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, everybody's muted, so you can't hear the uproarious laughter, but uh, we really are blessed to have you guys here. Uh, Dr. David Arias, just a splendid teacher and a professor of theology at Our Lady of Guadalupe Seminary in Denton. Dr. Matthew Waltz, uh, of course, from the University of Dallas. And Dale Alquist, who is famous for translating Chesterton from English into English. And uh, really great minds about to lead a great text and uh, with you all here. And you all make the Albertus Magnus Institute possible. Uh, I know many of you here are fellows. Many of you here are not yet fellows. Uh, but what we're doing uh, is, is no small effort. And that's thanks to the great work of two of our staff members here, Larissa Bianco and Eva Mormon, uh, formerly Eva Solak our director of development. Uh, we, in the past three years, two years of existence on the fellowship side, we've garnered a faculty in my view that is second to none in the, in the known universe and 800 plus splendid fellows studying great texts uh, on w at the feet of, of these great minds who are giving their time uh, to educate us. And so um, what we do is only possible with your help, and what we do can only grow with your help. So serving 800 fellows, we're limited um, not by students who, who have a demand that is great, and not by texts, uh, the treasury of wisdom is rich, and we're not limited by faculty who are eager and ready to teach. We are limited, however, by budget. So we're a very bootstrapped organization and a very limited donor base, but it is definitely uh, made abundant through the widow's might. Many of you contribute as fellows. And with that, I will turn it over to the leaders of our seminar tonight, Dale Alquist, David Arias, and Matthew Waltz. All right, David, why don't you kick us off? Okay, sure. I don't know how, how long-winded you want me to be. I can be either long-winded or short-winded. I let me let me first uh, just start by, by by thanking you guys for giving me the opportunity to be part of this webinar, and I'm particularly looking forward to what my colleagues uh, have to say regarding the text. And also, I'm looking forward to hearing the questions and the comments which our listeners have on their minds. All right. So uh, just to echo something that that Eva said and that John said. Uh, this is a text that I had read before. It had been a number of years since since I had read it. And so in my preparation for tonight, I was able to go back and, and reread it. And I couldn't help but be struck by just how appropriate 
I think it is to, to read and reflect on this work during Advent. Uh, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that St. Athanasius is, on the Incarnation is, is really about the many Advents or, or comings of the Divine Word, God the Son. Principally, of course, it's about our Lord's coming to us, the Incarnation, but St. Athanasius refers to other Advents or, or comings of our Lord as well. And so I'd like to thank whoever is re was responsible for choosing this text. I think that liturgically speaking, we have a, a really good text before us to reflect upon during this part of the liturgical year. So, so thank you for that. I don't know if uh, maybe you, since we're, since I'm beginning, should I give something like a divisio textus, something of a division of the text, or at least try to do that. Uh, and maybe something of a very brief overview, just because Probably not everyone that's here has 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 read the text recently. Divisio uh, textus away, my friend. <laughs> well, I was just trying to, as I was going through it, I was just trying to break it down a little bit, and and it seems to me that in the in the opening paragraph, Saint Athanasius does something uh, like what his medieval uh, counterparts will uh, do later. That is, he seems to he seems to lay out something of the four causes uh, of this work. And when I, when I say the four causes, I have in mind the four kinds of causes that Aristotle teaches us about, the material cause, the formal cause, the efficient cause, and the final cause. And, and if I could, let me just read a, a, a selection from the beginning. This is, this is in the first paragraph. My paragraphs are, are annotated. So about halfway down, just to read a chunk of the text, he says, speaking to the reader, he says, Come now, blessed one and true lover of Christ. Let us, with the faith of our religion, relate also the things concerning the incarnation of the word and expound his divine manifestation to us, which the Jews slander and the Greeks mock. But we ourselves venerate, so that all the more from his apparent degradation you may have an even greater and fuller piety towards him. For the more he is mocked by unbelievers, by so much he provides a greater witness of his divinity. Because what human beings cannot understand is impossible, these he shows to be possible. And what human beings mock is unseemly, these he renders fitting by his own goodness. And what human beings through sophistry laugh at is merely human, these by his power he shows to be divine overturning the illusions of idols by his own apparent degradation through the cross, invisibly persuading those who mock and disbelieve to recognize his divinity and his power. So that's, that's how he, he, he opens uh, this work, addressing his reader. And it seems to me, yeah, there, there's something of the four causes present here. I think we can tease those out. St. Athanasius, obviously, is the, he's the efficient cause of the work, in as much as he's the, the writer of this work. And notice he says that those for whom he's, he's writing this work are the, the true lovers of Christ. And he tells us that this work is, is ordered to increasing their piety towards Christ. This seems to me to be uh, the end or the final cause of the work. And then uh, the, the matter of the work, what St. Thomas Aquinas would call the, the materia circa quam, the, the matter about which uh, this work is concerned. 
uh, it seems to consist principally in the incarnation of the word and as his manifestation of both himself and of, and of God, the father to us. And then uh, lastly, the, the form of this work, I think it consists in, in the order in which St. Athanasius treats the, the, the material or the subject matter of this work. And th this order is it's not totally up front here in, in the prologue, but to a certain extent it's referred to, it seems to me, when St. Athanasius mentions that, that God shows various things to be possible and fitting, which men take to be impossible and unfitting. And he also, he also alludes to the objections of the, the Jews and the Greeks, which he considers and, and responds to uh, in the subsequent pages of, of this work. Now, expanding just a little bit more on, on the order of, of the parts here, it seems to me that, that we can distinguish maybe, maybe five main parts of the work besides this, this prologue that St. Athanasius gives us. So right after this prologue, he goes on to, to speak about man's creation and fall. And he thinks that we have to really have these things in mind uh, if we're to understand properly man's recreation uh, in the divine word. And after, after that, St. Athanasius, he, he treats of God the Son's incarnation and his manifestation of his divinity through his works. That seems to be the second part. And then third, uh, St. Athanasius lays out his understanding of our Lord's uh, salvific and you might even say deifying death and resurrection. And both of those are, are obviously intimately connected to our Lord's manifestation of his divinity. And then after that, it seems to me that St. Athanasius uh, addresses what, what he calls here the the unbelief of the Jews and the mockery of the Greeks. And he, and he shows that both the Jews and the Greeks have a, def, a deficient understanding of, of divine things. And then lastly, it seems to me, and this is kind of the fifth main part, St. Athanasius concludes by, by exhorting his readers, the true lovers of Christ, both to study the scriptures and, and especially to live lives of holiness modeled after the saints so that like the saints before them, they might come to, we might come uh, to that, that unspeakable reward, that ineffable reward, which God has prepared for those who love him. So it seems to me that that's, that's a, a bird's eye view of the, of the text, very bird's eye view, uh, just trying to distill some of the, some of the main parts uh, that are, that are here. And if, if I can tax your, your patience a little longer, maybe let me just wrap up, wrap up my comments by going back to something that St. Athanasius mentions in connection with his teachings about man's creation and then subsequent uh, recreation uh, in and through the, the eternal word. I just want to bring up a text that comes right after that, that uh, part of the prologue that I, that I read before. Uh, here's something that he says. So, he writes, the account of, uh, for the account of such things, it is necessary to recall what has previously been said, that you may be able to know the cause of the manifestation in the body of such and so great a paternal word, and not think that the Savior has worn a body as a consequence of nature, 
but that being by nature bodiless and existing as the word, by the love for humankind and goodness of his own father, he appeared to us in a human body for our salvation. As we give an account of this, it is first necessary to speak about the creation of the universe and its maker, God, so that one may thus worthy, worthily reflect that its recreation was accomplished by the word who created it in the beginning. For it, will not, for it will appear not at all contradictory if the Father works its salvation in the same one by whom he created it. And I think it's in particular the, the last couple lines there that, that strike, well, at least strike me as, as really important. So St. Athanasius is basically saying that it was, it was through his divine word that God the Father created all things. And so it, it makes sense that he would recreate all things, especially fallen man, through this same divine word. And this seems to be a principle that he, that he comes back to uh, in different ways, as as he as he explains, as he explains uh, his his meditations on the or his his thoughts on on the incarnation and and our light our, our Lord's uh, saving work, and and that notion that it's it's fitting that it be through one and the same divine person the world is created and recreated. This is something that gets taken up and and developed in in later theology. And here I have in mind uh, something that St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, in, in particular, uh, has to say. So in, in Summa Theologiae, one of the questions that St. Thomas asks is, why is it more fitting for God the Son to have become incarnate than either of the other two divine persons? Any of the three divine persons could have become incarnate but only one became incarnate. So why, why was it most fitting for God the Son to become incarnate as opposed to God the Father or God the Holy Spirit? And, and here's, a, here's a, a text from St. Thomas where he, he addresses that. But just listen to the similarity between what he says and what St. Athanasius uh, just said. St. Thomas, he articulates, I think, the same, same basic reason, but just in a more developed form. So this is a quote, if you want to look it up, it's from the Summa Theologiae, and from the third part, it's uh, question three, article eight. And it's the first argument that he gives uh, in, in the body of that article. He says, it was most fitting that the person of the Son should become incarnate, first on the part of the union, for such as are similar are fittingly united. Now the person of the Son, who is the Word of God, has a certain common agreement with all creatures. Because the Word of the craftsman, that is his concept, is an exemplar likeness of all creatures. Or sorry, of, of, all, uh, of all made by him, all things made by him. Hence the Word of God, who is the eternal concept, is the exemplar likeness of all creatures. And therefore, as creatures are established in their proper species, though movably, by the participation of this likeness, so by the non-participated and personal union of the word with a creature, it was fitting that the creature should be restored in order to its eternal and unchangeable perfection. For the craftsman, by the intelligible word of his art, whereby he fashioned his handiwork, restores it when it has fallen into ruin. Then he goes on to say, moreover, 
God the Son has a particular agreement with human nature, since the word is a concept of the eternal wisdom from whom all man's wisdom is derived. And thus man is perfected in wisdom, which is his proper perfection insofar as he is rational, by participating in the word of God, as the disciple is instructed by receiving the word of his master. And thus it is said in the book of Sirach, the word of God on high is the fountain of wisdom. And hence, for the consummate perfection of man, it was fitting that the very word of God should be personally united to human nature. Okay, so that's the quote from St. Thomas. And I, th- I think you can, you can hear in those, those words of St. Thomas, the arguments of St. Thomas, you can, you can hear a, a fuller, kind of more un- unpacked version of, of what St. Athanasius uh, said about why it's fitting that God the Son became man as opposed to one of the other uh, divine persons. And and here, I think we see something uh, very beautiful. If nothing else, we see uh, from, from this that St. Athanasius's teaching on, on Christology is an important and integral part of, of the Catholic Christological patrimony as it gets developed throughout the centuries. And, and as such, it seems to me that St. Athanasius's teaching assists us in, in more deeply understanding both the, the Word of God, which is sacred scripture, and the Word of God, who is the incarnate Son of God. So maybe I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. I'd love to hear what others have to say, but that's just an attempt to break things open a little bit. And I changed my mind about curating questions. If anybody wants to jump in, uh, just unmute yourself and uh, do do what you want to do. Uh, Matt, do you want to go next? or um... Sure, I'll, I'll be happy to do so. Okay. Uh, like David, I want to thank uh, John and the whole crew for this opportunity to return to this beautiful, beautiful text. I love returning to the fathers of the church. Um, They're so human. (laughs) They're so pastoral and so scriptural. They're so deeply rooted in scripture. And also, uh, it's a nice break uh, as well, because they're so rhetorical. You know, thinking about liberal education, uh, it really was an age of oratory and rhetoric. And the need of the fathers to persuade people to the faith, right? To, to bring them into the church. And so I think this text is such a powerful rhetorical text. The number of analogies and metaphors that it works out and um, the powerful language that it uses, uh, which in some ways is maybe a little more evident in the Greek, especially. Uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to post in the chat quickly, um, 1 Corinthians 1, 22 to 25, which I, I think really uh, shapes Athanasius's thinking in this text, uh, evident from what, some of what David said about uh, in his uh, breakdown of the text, especially his thinking through what it means to to be Jewish and to be Greek. And, and partly I want you to think about those categories less concretely and maybe a little bit more about 
every human being having, as it were, Judaic tendencies and Hellenic tendencies, if I could put it that way, uh, Jewish and Greek tendencies. Um, as David pointed out, the book is written for believers. So he's not really intending this book to be read by others. So it's not an apologetical work in that sense. It might provide the possibility of defending the faith, of course, with the kinds of arguments. But he really is writing this for what he calls uh, Christ lovers, literally, true lovers of Christ, uh, Christophile Christe, they're called. Um, and therefore, I think in some ways this book, and, and I agree with David, a great book to read during Advent, because in some ways it's meant for the believer to be a return to the truth of the faith about the becoming human of, of the word. And to maybe uh, remind us of our possibilities of falling into a sort of Jewish mode of thinking where we demand signs and, and in some way or another, Christ becomes a stumbling block to us and that we don't really understand uh, God's power appropriately. Or we can fall into a more Greek or pagan way of thinking where we can seek wisdom on our own without the help of scripture, without the help of Christ. Christ in some way or another becomes a folly to us and we don't really understand the wisdom of God. Um, so these I think are for Athanasius uh, ways that the believers have to uphold over against these two possible tendencies. And it'd be worth thinking about what exactly those tendencies are in us, in each of our souls. Uh, but you know, this is coming probably, he wrote this after Nicaea, so he's trying to uphold the true faith that was achieved through that creed and, and really trying to help believers uh, attain to it, you might say, through a whole set of arguments, both scriptural and philosophical, that point to how much sense it makes that God became a human being. Let me just say a, a few other words about, um, for instance, the title of the work. Um, if you have the, the book in front of you, uh, we call it on the incarnation. On the incarnation, it's got a slightly longer title. Um, the title in this version, I don't know what version people have, but this is the one put out most recently by Saint Vladimir's. Um, they also have a Greek-English version. I, I have that on the side here, but this one's all in English. But the full title, as it's translated here, is Treatise by the Same Author. So he's presuming you've read a previous work, which is actually a work he called Agentes, or to the pagans, or to the nations. A Treatise by the Same Author on the Incarnation of the Word, the Logos, and his manifestation to us through the body. And let me just say a couple of words about that. The word for incarnation in Greek is, is probably better translated as the becoming human of the word. <laughs> it doesn't refer to flesh. It refers to becoming human. Uh, it's the same word he's using here that Nicaea in the Greek version of the Creed in Nicaea is uh, is basically the inhumanization of the word. Why did the word become a human being? 
And then he wants to talk about his manifestation to us through the body. The word for manifestation there is epiphania, where we get the word epiphany, the appearing to us through the body. And so in some ways, I think to, to maybe uh, capitalize a little bit on what David was saying about the division of the text, I think it's helpful to see that the first part is really about his giving an account of the words becoming human. You might even say from a divine perspective, the whole first section before he gets to the Jews and the Greeks is really trying to think what was God thinking <laughs> and what was God thinking as Christ has revealed it to us, right? Christ has shown us the thinking of God in his becoming human and in particular in becoming a body. And so creation is reread through the lens of Christ in this work. Everything is looked at, at heading towards the becoming human of the word. And creation is reread in that light, which gets a very interesting reading of the act of creation. And then in the second part, when he turns to the Jews and the Greeks, he's really wondering about how does the word appear to us through having a body? And it looks like there's two ways that it can appear to us. It can appear to us in the way that it appeared to many of the Jews. Namely, it was a scandal to them, right? And they slander Christ and they accuse Christ. Or it can appear to us as it does to the Greeks who mock or laugh at it. Sort of like uh, what Paul encountered on the Areopagus when he goes to preach and they they're sort of amused by the possibility of resurrection. Um, so the Greeks laugh and the Jews accuse. And these are two ways that the word, the becoming human of the word through the body can appear to us. And Athanasius wants to overcome both of those. How can we make it so that the becoming human of the word is not a scandal nor foolishness, but is in fact the power and the wisdom of God? So basically, it seems to me, uh, I think that's a helpful way to get into the text. If you were to break it into those uh, few parts to really think about the, the foolishness of the incarnation, as we sometimes might think it, or the scandal of it, as we sometimes might think it. And if I might just make one last comment, especially about the timeliness of this text during Advent. Um, of course, Christmas is is the celebration of the nativity or the birth of Christ. But in a more general sense, and especially this was much truer in the uh, early church, the, the celebration on December 25th was a celebration of the mystery of the incarnation. Uh, to some degree, we've lost that a little bit. Uh, we, we really do, and this it's more a medieval tendency that took place to focus specifically on the birth. Which is, of course, as we all know, beautiful and and very heartfelt and brings out all our deepest emotions. But sometimes we might lose sight of the fact that we're also celebrating something like a primary mystery, right? And the mystery is the incarnation. So in that sense, uh, reading this work where he's dealing with with what it meant, what's the, what's the full meaning of Christ becoming a human, of the word becoming human, 
in many ways that prepares us in a fuller way, I would argue, for the mystery of Christmas itself. Well, that was lovely. Thank you, Matt. And thank you, David. Thank you, John, for inviting me as well to, to be part of a, this distinguished panel uh, this evening. Uh, I'm really glad that you finished with that, Matt, about contemplating the great mystery of the incarnation. It's uh, uh, it's something that has to be new for each one of us. But uh, one of the things I wanted to bring up in reflecting on this work was how difficult it was to grasp the idea during those early years of Christianity. And, and this is, you know, this was the great importance of this work um, because there was a, a, an early Christian world that was rampant with heresy. And uh, that was the, the reason for the, the Council of Nicaea to try to better define the Trinity and uh, specifically what the incarnation uh, meant theologically and doctrinally. Uh, but what was happening? Well, we, we mentioned, uh, you know, Arianism. And of course, we, we can't let St. Nicholas's feast day go by without mentioning the great legend that's, that Santa Claus punched out Arius at the uh, Council of Nicaea. It's, it's really one of the great things about St. Nick is that he certainly was a fleshly christian you know he 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 took the he took theology you know to where it, where it meant something and uh uh but you know that was the 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 arian heresy was the idea that jesus was not divine he was uh a very good man one of god's special uh people but not not divine and um and of course, this was side by side with another heresy, the the, um, the Gnostic heresy and the Nestorian heresies. Similar, the idea that it's only the it's only a, a special spiritual truth that is divine, um, and and that's all Jesus was. There wasn't anything fleshly about him, uh, and uh, he was he was more spirit pretending to be human, and what. What Saint Athanasius defined so importantly for for the Church was that Christ is fully God and fully man, uh, and but by declaring it, he was at the time. A lot of people forget was going against popular opinion. Uh, the, the majority uh, of Christians were were heretics at that time, and it was a heresy that actually increased after the. The council. The council declared the doctrine and the creed, and uh, that didn't make the the Arian heretics go away. They actually multiplied. Um, it, it got worse after the council until things settled down, uh, and it was a, a heresy that, that kind of withered away. But um, I think that. Uh, we forget how difficult it was uh, at the time for the church to to define this important theological truth that, of course, we have been able to benefit from for centuries afterwards. I know that you know what's really on your mind is what did Chesterton have to say about uh, Athanasius, 
And uh, I've had the great privilege recently of um, annotating uh, The Everlasting Man uh, that's going to be published by uh, Word on Fire. And there's a great passage on St. Athanasius. He talks about um, the witness of the heretics uh, in part two of the book, where it's the very the very heretics point to the truth uh, because uh, the, the, the church ha- in condemning the heresies points out the very flaws that people have in, in trying to understand when they're trying to understand Christianity. And he, he says that it's typical of people to criticize the church for spending too much time on specific little narrow doctrines. And one of the very first ones they go to is Athanasius and all of his hair splitting about what uh, what it means, uh, the person of Christ, to fully God, fully human, homusen, right? And um, But then at the same time that they pick on doctrine, dismiss dogma, and don't think theology means anything, at the very same time, they always affirm the truth that everyone knows, that God is love. God is love. Well, Chesterton says what they seem to miss in those two reactions is that what Athanasius has done with the with that doctrine on the incarnation is expressing the truth that God is love. The two go together. Uh, he says the two statements are almost identical. Uh for if there is a being without beginning existing before all things, he was loving. And how could he be loving if there was nothing to be loved? If through that unthinkable eternity he is lonely, what is the meaning of saying he is love? The only justification of such a mystery is the mystical conception that in his own nature there was something analogous to self expression, something of what begets and beholds what it has begotten. Without some such idea, it is really illogical to complicate the ultimate essence of the deity with an idea like love. If the moderns really want a simple religion of love, they must look for it in the Athanasian creed. The truth is, that the trumpet of true Christianity, the challenge of the charities and simplicities of Bethlehem or Christmas Day, never rang out more arrestingly and unmistakably than in the defiance of Athanasius to the cold compromise of the Arians. It was emphatically he who really was fighting for a god of love against a god of colorless and remote cosmic control the God of the Stoics and the Agnostics. It was emphatically he who was fighting for the Holy Child against the gray deity of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He was fighting for that very balance of beautiful interdependence and intimacy in the very trinity of the divine nature that draws our hearts to the trinity of the Holy Family. His dogma, if the phrase be not misunderstood, turns even God into a holy family. It's kind of a a throwback to his great reference in Orthodoxy, where he talks about 
God being a society as opposed to uh, the Islamic understanding of the lonely God of the desert. It's not good for God to be alone. Uh, and of course, for those who uh, you know criticize Christianity as being in such deep error, uh, I think Chesterton really nails it when he says, if Christianity was one vast universal blunder, it is still a blunder as solitary as the incarnation. I mean, there is nothing in all religion to compare with the idea of the incarnation. There's just simply nothing that compares with it. And uh, Athanasius uh, stands as one of the great fathers because he articulated what is almost inarticulable uh, so well. One of the things I got out, I'm glad you brought up, John, uh, you brought up, no, it was uh, it was David who brought up Thomas Aquinas. Uh, is one of the things that I got in my rereading of Athanasius was the importance of the incarnation to the uh, dogma of the resurrection. Obviously, the resurrection makes no sense and has no meaning if Jesus isn't a human being and, uh, you know, God in the flesh, uh, a body, a human body that died and came back to life bodily. But that, uh, and Chester brings this out in his book on Thomas Aquinas, too, that what Thomas explains so well is the resurrection of the body, which is one of the most difficult of all Christian doctrines for people in the world to embrace, including Christians themselves, including Catholics themselves, who don't seem to know anymore how to honor the dead by, uh, you know, taking seriously that they are going to rise bodily from the dead. Uh, there's just nothing more earth-shattering than that that idea, and the only the incarnation makes that possible. The the idea of resurrection from the dead. Uh, I'll give you I'll give you a couple more Chesterton quotes because I know that's what you want. In fact, I'll put them right in the uh, right in there. See if that works. There we go. The trend of good is always towards incarnation. And the inevitable result of love is incarnation. And the inevitable result of incarnation is crucifixion. Is that a mic drop moment, Dale? That was beautiful. Let's open it up. Any of our panelists, uh, donors, Take first crack at it. Anybody wants to say anything, uh, maybe unmute, raise your hand. Stan, great. Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned Gnosticism, and and I'm curious how much of John's writings, particularly John and First John, reflected kind of a proto Gnosticism that John might have been answering. And of course, Paul is going to say something like um, that, which is falsely called knowledge. First uh, John's going to use the word knowledge 33 times. I think the gospel uses it almost a hundred. Um, you know, how, how much of these anti-incarnational doctrines were infiltrating 
the church in the very, very early stages. Well, I'm sure my esteemed colleagues are better experts than I am on this, but I know that it was very early. There were, there were, you know, Gnostic writings, Gnostic versions of the gospel, you know, within the, the second and third century. And, um, and it's very clear that, that Athanasius, even though it's not a work of apologetics, is addressing it when he talks about the fact that everything has access to the knowledge of God. It's it's not an exclusive thing. It, it, it's that, that really comes out, I think, in, in this treatise, that the knowledge of God is evident in everything. That's a, that's a good question, Stan. I'm also, uh, I don't have much historical knowledge maybe of that, but I think at least what Athanasius sees is that the way in which for the way in which the body becomes the the how would i put it the the real question that god could really become a body um so in that sense i think the gnostics just represent uh or or sort of embody the there's something deep in the human spirit that somehow does not want to associate ultimately God with the body. And, and it's interesting to me that Athanasius, when, he, when he's defending in the first part uh, Christ, first he talks about how is God going to deal with the question of death and how can he solve that problem? But then the second question is, how can God deal with the question of knowledge? And basically, Athanasius's answer is that to get everyone to know the truth, the body has to become God's instrument. God has to become a body in order to make the truth known um, in a way that's actually salvific and universal. And this is, uh, as you can imagine, this is, especially for the Greeks, this is a problem. But as he points out to the Greeks later on, uh, you philosophers have had your chance to spread the truth. You haven't done that well, <laughs> you know. But if God becomes a body and preaches in very uh, accessible ways about bodily things and using parables and stuff like that, it turns out that that's quite successful as a way of getting people to the truth. Matthew, do you do you think this is a a, a extension of a Platonistic Aristotelianistic bifurcation? Yeah, I mean, what there is upon this rereading, I was struck how much how much Greek philosophy is in the background of this text, but the ways in which he's he's bringing Greek philosophy to its what he considers it's it's reasonable and rational completion. Um, let me put it this way. Partly what I think he's doing, especially in relation to the Greeks, but also in the first part of the text, is saying, you want wisdom, as, I, as you can see from that text in uh, Corinthians that I put up there. The Greeks seek wisdom. It turns out that they believe wisdom is present in the universe. But what the incarnation offers is that the, the entire wisdom of the universe can be found in a single body. <laughs> and 
there's something about them that doesn't want to take that next step. They're willing to accept the wholeness of it. And so you get that in Plato. Plato has, uh, you know, the forms in some ways appear throughout the universe. The universe is intelligible. There's an ultimate intelligibility. But there's something in the Greeks that think that it's foolish to think that all that wisdom can come penetrate, as it were, into a single human body. And that's what Christianity puts on offer. It's not just the, the wisdom, the philosophers, that the whole universe is intelligible and there's a principle of intelligibility, but that, that principle of wisdom and intelligibility became concrete. And that is, is they laugh at that. <laughs> Which is John 1 1. I mean, and the word became flesh. Exactly. But, the, you know, the logos there is that unifying principle, correct? Yep. And it's interesting that the, the Jews have a different problem. It's not that problem. Their problem is seeking signs and not realizing, it seems to me, if I were to summarize Athanasius' answer to the, the Jews or a Jewish mindset, it would be, oh, yeah, we'll give you signs. How about this? Your entire Old Testament was a sign. <laughs> And now we have the completion. We have everything that it was pointing to. You want signs? You got it. Everything that happened before Christ was a sign. We got more signs than you can imagine. And if I could just maybe piggyback on, on something that, that uh, Matt pointed out. Well, I, so Stan, Stan mentioned in, in, in his question, is this or do we see here somehow uh, the, the bifurcation between you know, Plato in Aristotle or Platonic philosophy or Stoic philosophy, and I think one one thing that that Saint Athanasius seems to seems to bring up more than once is is that it, it was absolutely appropriate for 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 God the Son for the Divine Word to take on to take on this human body so that he could he could manifest himself. And God the Father to us, uh, in a way that's so to speak pr proportioned to to how we learn, right? To make to make God more more available to us, more 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 manifest to us, and and I and I think you'd say that that that's pretty Aristotelian in a sense, uh, because what he's doing is he's or what Athanasius is, is doing is he's saying God is is condescending in a way to, to our human mode of knowing, right? He becomes man so that, or he, he, he takes on a body so that we, these bodily creatures, can can become God, as, as he says later on, so that we can become God uh, with a lowercase g. But I, th I, think that's, I think that's important. And then maybe in connection with that, one thing that struck me as well when when Saint Athanasius talks about about uh, Christians who are who are who are living the Christian life uh, in his day, uh, he offers them as as examples as living examples to to the Greeks and to the Jews, and and he makes it clear that that Christ is is the resurrected Christ. Is is here and now acting through, through these persons, through these human persons. So, uh, I think that 
that adds a a kind of a kind of extension to to Matt's point that God the Son became man. He took on a human body, and then he and then he 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 catches up other human persons. Uh, he unites them to himself. Saint Athanasius doesn't doesn't talk a lot about the the, the the church explicitly or the mystical body of Christ, but it seems like that's that's something that's there in the background that he's that he's mentioning using other terms. And I can't I can't help but be but but suspect that that his time in the desert that he spent with the famous uh, Saint Saint Anthony, uh, one of the great desert fathers and and other desert fathers that this was this was a time when 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 he saw experientially that, that these these men these saints living out in the desert they're they're other Christs through whom through whom the incarnate Word is 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 acting in our day and age and 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 they're they're models to us or they they as it were manifest uh, Christ to us whom whom we can't see uh, in in the flesh right now but we can so to speak see him through. Uh, through these extensions of him. Well, that reminded me of another Chesterton quote, David. Ha. <laughs> the fact that Athanasius had camaraderie with these other church fathers in the desert and that that helped in in many ways helped him understand and articulate the doctrine of the incarnation. Uh it reminded me of a Chesterton quote where he, he talks about um that all all friendliness begins with with very fleshly things, human things, fire and food and drink, because they, you know, even though they were they were desert fathers and they they got together out in the desert, they had fellowship together, they had a human interaction together, and he says that uh, that if you don't begin at the bodily end of things, you're just a prig. He says that the human soul has, in a sense, to enact for itself the gigantic humility of the incarnation. Every man must descend into the flesh to meet mankind. Fits right in. I have a question for our panel uh, rooted in, I think, the 47th paragraph on the New Advent version here. Um, so on numerous oracles, the fancied apparitions in sacred places, etc., dispelled by the sign of the cross. So Athanasius says, and whereas formerly every place was full of deceit of the oracles and the oracles at Delphi and Dodona, at Boetia and Lycia and Libya and Egypt and all those of Kabiri and the Pothanes were, were held in repute by men's imagination. Now, since Christ has begun to be preached everywhere, their madness also has ceased, and there is none among them to divine anymore. And whereas formerly demons used to deceive men's fancy, occupying springs or rivers, trees or stones, and thus imposed upon by the simple, uh, by their uh, juggleries, now after the divine visitation of the word, their deception has ceased. For by the sign of the cross, though a man but use it, he drives out their deceits. And while formerly men held to be gods, the Zeus and Kronos and Apollo and the heroes mentioned and the poets and went astray in honoring them, now the Savior has appeared among men. 
those others have been exposed as mortal men, and Christ alone has been recognized among men as the true God, the Word of God. My question is, would Athanasius hold the same opinion today? Uh, he's writing in a way very much seems like there has been a an evident secular victory won by the crucifixion and death of Christ as manifest to the nations. And now it seems, and maybe this is not novel to now, but maybe it's a perennial thing, I'm not sure, but that there is uh, a resurgence of the madness, the demonic, the false gods, uh, almost setting up a final battle, a, a, a conclusion to the trilogy, as it were, something of uh, an apocalypse, right? So what would Athanasius say now uh, about this, the state of this victory? Well, I think on the, on the one hand, um, he would say, he would say the same thing in that the pagan gods really are, are not a factor anymore. Zeus and, uh, and Apollo and those girls, that that the, uh, the the pagan gods of natural religion, the the attempt to express uh, as poetically as possible the divine, um, that that has come to an end. That did come to an end in Christ, and even though we we see evidences of paganism in, in Marvel comics and things like that, it's not not the same as it was. Uh, at the time, uh, you know, that Christ really did replace the Roman gods and the, and the, the uh, barbarian deities. Uh, but as for the demons, um, I, I think the demons, of course, are very much present. And I think this is where a uh, Athanasius would have really benefited from a good reading of Chesterton, who, who makes this distinction between the pagan gods and the demons. Um, that, that that certainly, when when paganism does decline and does fail, mythology itself ends in you know just pure eroticism and degradation, and uh, people people look for for gods who will get things done, and that's why they go and look look at demons, and and the demons are always at war. With the true God, and people do go to them for results. Uh, they they go to to the very dark side, and I think uh, Chesterton makes that distinction better than Saint Athanasius does. Well, I don't have much to add to that. <laughs> um, I get it was funny, John, when you brought up that question. It was on my mind as I was reading it today. It made me think about some of the limits of historical argumentation in in a sort of apologetical mode um in part because we just don't know <laughs> the uh what's to come in history so um i imagine that uh, i mean at the very least you could say athanasius can at least make the claim that historically there was some victory of Christ over something at that point in history. What the battle was to come is in some ways harder to tell. 
Um, so in that regard, it does seem like whatever Christ affected, there was some sort of revolution in the world that took place. Um, so at least to that degree, it seems that he, he is to be taken seriously as having offered someone something. But I share I share a certain concern about what kind of what kind of historical apologetic could even be made at this point if in fact what you described is is the case i think that is seriously an open question um and i think we have to be careful apologetically to find hope in the in the so-called progress of history yeah well said uh, david arias what do you what do you think about that and just to sort of add to my question I noticed an almost pregnant silence in this text on the final escalade, es, es, eschatol, es, apocalyptic <laughs> um, uh, battle, right? The, the end of days, eschatological battle. Actually, as, as you're reading that, that text, and it is a striking text for, for the reasons uh, that you mentioned, John, as you're reading it, I guess I, I was reminded of something that that Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, says in his in his work, uh, the genealogy of morality, of morals, genealogy of morals, uh, and I don't remember the exact year when that work was written, but recall that Nietzsche died in 1900, so it was written before then, and and he says, looking at looking at Europe in his day. He says we can we can see that that Christian dogma is perishing in our day, and 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 he he says that we can. I mean, this is pretty wicked, but he says we can we can long uh, for for the the corresponding uh, perishing of of Christian morality, which will be a necessary consequence of, of Christian dogma perishing. So. So what you brought up, I think, is just a fact of experience, the secularization of our, of our culture and, and maybe the, the presence of, of the demonic in a way that, that wasn't, there, wasn't there previously. Uh, I bring up Nietzsche because I, I think he shows that, well, this has been going on for, for a while. What we're seeing now has been going on for, for, for quite some time, at least in Europe and, and so forth. Uh, anyways, it seems to me that w one thing we'd want to have in our minds to bring up another church father uh, is is I, I think Saint Augustine's account of, of of history, thinking of history in terms of he tells us that that we should we should think of of history in terms of of a fundamental struggle between between two so two societies, two societies of of, of, of persons, right? To cities, as, as, as he calls them, uh, city of God on the one hand and, and the earthly city. And these two cities have, have been in existence almost since the, almost since the beginning of, of creation. It's at the beginning, there was just the city of God initially, but then with the fall of the, of, of the, of the angels with the fall of, of some of, of the angels who became demons, there was the beginning of, of, of the formation of the, the earthly city. And, and it seems to me that, that he's right, that, that scripture, scripture describes this, the struggle 
between these two cities over over time, and and we can read it seems to me uh, history in, in terms of that struggle and and there's a kind of you know greater success if you want to put it in in, in those terms uh, that you find on the part of the city of God or at least apparent success and then sometimes the, the city of God is weaker in certain areas right so there's a kind of ebb and flow there and Saint Athanasius seems to be writing during a time when when it was it was clear that the incarnation and, and the spread of the faith had, had really rocked the known world uh, for the better but right now we'd have to say yeah it, it's not that way right now but still still you can understand it seems to me our, our present day in terms of the struggle of these two cities which will go on until until the eschaton isn't it the case as Athanasius defines here, uh, that the perfect victory that Christ wrought was precisely through his death. And it's not explicit in this text, but wouldn't we have to imply that uh, the church will follow her head and that it is precisely victory that is our enemy and death that, that conquers death? Um, so to the extent that the church finds herself following after Christ in his glorious defeat, apparent defeat, that that will constitute the church's ultimate victory, eschatologically. Victory has defeated us, right? And, and, and death is our victory. I, I would... John, I think I agree with you ex with this caveat that that participation in the death of Christ might appear quite differently throughout history. In other words, yeah, our participation in his death and resurrection is at the, at the heart of it. But I think Athanasius is aware that the appearance of that could vary quite significantly. He's I think he's really thinking hard about, uh, you know, he, in a sort of Greek philosophic mode, really thinking hard about reality versus appearances. Um, because he's also very much aware of Arianism and, and a certain kind of appearance of losing the battle in other ways. So uh, I think most, when I read that text, I'm really struck by uh, in some ways, that battle with the idols is a battle that takes place in every soul, and whether he's really thinking about that the battle at that level, um, and that every person at some point can, if they overcome idol worship of whatever form, can say once again that Christ was victorious in my soul, whether or not in the, in the appearances of the world I'm suffering or or under duress or what have you. Um, John, may, may oh, I just, oh, sorry. I was just going to ask um, what, what you said reminded me of what Dale mentioned about incarnation always leading to crucifixion. But it just, it occurred to me that maybe, uh, maybe the Lord's first act of, total sacrifice was the incarnation 
to not be able to separate the two because he, he surrendered his life as God to become God-man. He gave up everything he had and was at the time. And, and is that what's asked of us ultimately? I think that's a great question. Um, I'll open it up to the panel to respond to that. Athanasius says in this work that, you know, the incarnation is the moment, not in these words, but the incarnation is the moment at which God becomes passable and susceptible to, you know, he says not to sickness, but to something like hunger. Um, So uh, what do you guys think of that? Um, The intertwining of the incarnation and as an act of sacrifice itself. It's certainly a humble act. The incarnation is a humble act on the side, uh, on the uh, act, uh, part of God. And um, the fact that, that Christ humbled himself is certainly the, the, the first step of that was to, to be a, a baby. And, uh, you know, that's, that's where we, we see it acted out, where Chesterton says the everlasting man, the, the hands that created the sun and moon were too small to reach the heads of the cattle. And it, it's, uh, it's clear that that is, uh, that is the first, the first step, that act of humility, again, is, is going to lead all the way to the, to the hill of, of Calvary. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2022, Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.